This is Self Care You with Scott, and today we have a conversation with professional racquetball player, public speaker, and drunk driver head-on collision survivor, Darren Chatter. Let me set the scene. Darren is driving home on a regular night just like you or I would. Darren's exact words were, I saw nothing but headlights coming out of the darkness. A huge impact, screeching tires, twisted metal, and then darkness and the silence. Just outside of Phoenix, Darren had been struck by a wrong way drunk driver head on. This is Self Care You, and we're about to level up with Mothers Against Drunk Driving activist, professional racquetball player, and public speaker, Darren Chatter. What's good, everyone? Thanks for sticking around for another episode of the Self Care You podcast. Today's episode is proudly brought to you by our good friends at Sleeman Mortgage Solutions. The largest investment in your life can be a scary situation. You need to reach out to Rivka. Not only is she one of the best people that you'll meet, but she's very knowledgeable when it comes to your mortgage. Call Rivka and the team at Sleeman Mortgage Solutions to help limit your stress that you may be feeling and get you to a place where you can enjoy this awesome accomplishment in your life. Shoot over to at Sleeman Mortgage Solutions on Instagram and limit your stress today. Today on the podcast, we have my man, Darren Chatter. We have an awesome conversation about his journey of becoming the 18th ranked racquetball player in the world, his time coaching at Arizona State, and his inspiring story about surviving a head-on collision with a drunk driver. Shoutouts to Mothers Against Drunk Driving, and remember, don't be a loser. If you're impaired, don't drive. This is a conversation you don't want to miss. Let's get right into it. Today on the show, we sit down with professional racquetball player and public speaker, Darren Shank. Darren, how are you doing today? Fabulous. Thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Hey, Darren, why don't you give our listeners a little bit about who you are and where you're from? Sure. So I'm, I'm calling you from Phoenix, Arizona. Um, been here. I'm, I'm what we call semi-native in Arizona. Anybody that's lived in Arizona longer than 10 years is uh, semi-native at this point. Um, and uh, as, as you had alluded to, I was a professional racquetball player for about six years and uh, have done some other things of interest after that, including being the coach of the Arizona State University racquetball team. And uh, that I've used the skills that I've learned on the racquetball court as a player and as a coach in my professional career as well. And, and that's kind of what was the impetus for my speaking career was to share as much of that information as possible um, and shorten the learning curves of others. Right. And just so our listeners know, uh, Darren Chatter will also get into the mix, right? Obviously, that's a, a name that you like to keep in the mix there. Maybe you want to let everybody know kind of what that means. Yeah. So thank you. So um, my my brand name for, for my speaking is Darren Chatter. Um, and the inside joke is that I love to hear myself talk. So that's why it's called Ch- uh, Darren Chatter. Um, and so <laughs> I have a website that's j- DarrenChatter.com. And uh, I, I do some self-optimization coaching and public speaking. And that that brand is the umbrella brand for those services. Gotcha. Well, we're pretty excited to have this conversation. Um, I think, you know, with self-care, you were trying to have conversations with all different types of people from all different walks of life. And I think that you have a really unique story uh, to share with our listeners. So we're just going to get right into it. I wanted to start off with your racquetball career, you know, you became 18th ranked in the world, which is a pretty amazing 
uh, staple just by itself. But I'm interested to hear how, you know, how that started. I don't know if you don't, but I'm a sports guy. I love yeah. basketball. I coach basketball at a pretty high level out here in Canada. And, and uh, I, I just love sports in general. So I'd love to hear about that career. Yeah, thanks. It. I have a, a I mean, every, everyone's story is unique, of course. Um, uh, I don't know that mine's any more unique, but uh, it's certainly different than, than a lot. Um, I have not followed a classic path in very many things that I've done in life at all. So um, I started out with the dreams of being a high school wrestler, and that was how I would get to college, would be on a, on a scholarship for wrestling. Well, in my freshman year of um, trying out for the team, I shot a takedown, my opponent sprawled, I heard something snap, and the coach yelled, don't move, don't move, you're hurt. And I said, who's hurt? And he said, you are. And so uh, I rolled over and was looking up at the lights, and then things started going numb, and I mean, I couldn't feel my feet, and then my legs, and I was you know, kind of panicking, thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to be in a wheelchair my whole life. Um, turned out I did not fracture or break my spinal cord. It was what's called a transverse process, which is a bone that kind of flares off of your spinal cord. That's what actually broke. Oh my. So I was not, uh, I think that I was in shock and that's why I was getting the numbness effect more so than the injury itself. So I did have to wear a neck collar for about six weeks, probably should have been eight, but I took it off after six weeks. And that was, you know, long story short, that was the end of my wrestling career. Um, I loved one of the things I loved about wrestling was that even though you're part of a team, it is very individualized. Um, I played some little league baseball. And even though I was the pitcher and I had some level of control over the outcome, you know, my, my all of my teammates had to do their job, too. And I, I like the idea of everything being on my shoulders and the outcomes being up to me and not a collective group of people. So racquetball was a, you know, also mirrored that same approach. And about six months after my wrestling injury, my uncle took me to play racquetball. And I'll say this politely as possible. My uncle wasn't a, a pillar of fitness at the time. Um, he was, uh, you know, in his early forties, I was a cocky high school freshman thought sure that, you know, I could hang with him no matter what we were doing, if it was in an athletic endeavor and boy, was I wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he ran me ragged um, for five games. I barely scored a point. If I did, it was only on his error. Um, and I just was stunned. I couldn't believe that, you know, this quote unquote old guy could run me around and just make me look, you know, lost in some kind of sporting endeavor. So I, I, it didn't sit well with me. So I uh, asked my dad to buy me a racket and, and uh, I would walk to the park and practice every day after school. A month later, I challenged my uncle again. And uh, this time I did a lot better. I, I still didn't win, but the it was noticeable how much improvement that was made. And so he was very encouraging in that aspect. And I got the somewhat instant gratification of seeing that hard work paying off. Right. So all of that effort and discipline that I had um, in the, in the world of wrestling, I transferred into my own little world in racquetball. And pretty shortly after that, there was a pro level tournament that came to Arizona and some guys that I had met through playing at the park said that they were going to go play in that event. And I was like, yeah, sure. Sign me up. I'll, I'll go give it a try. Right. Well, I didn't even know what I didn't know at that stage. For one thing, I had never played indoors. 
So <laughs> I had played outdoor racquetball with no ceiling um, and no back wall. So obviously going to a geometrically very different environment <laughs> was a huge handicap. So I had the distinction of being uh, the only person that lost on the first hour of the first day of that event <laughs> and then took somebody else's place who did not show up and lost just as badly the second time <laughs> in that same event. So I didn't exactly have an auspicious start by any means, but after that, I was sitting on the bleachers watching the pros play, and I was just blown away at the athleticism that the guys were displaying, you know, hitting the ball so hard and diving all over the place on the wood floor. And they were all wearing these cool warm-up suits, and um, a, a lot of them had very attractive women with them. So, you know, as a 16-year-old kid, I'm like, hey, man, where do I sign up for this? This looks like a great life. And yeah. so at that moment, despite having lost in the lowest amateur division twice, I decided I'm going to become one of these guys. And a mere 10 years later, <laughs> I turned pro and um, threw my hat in the ring at the highest level of play. And really the first two years I was out on the pro tour, I, I, was, I barely belonged, um, but I was one of the better players in Arizona. And the only way to really continue to get better is to go out and face the best competition out there. And so I had to take the next step to, to play it on the pro tour. Yeah. Jeez. What a story. It's pretty amazing. You know, our listenership definitely understands that I love sports and I love to hear about that journey. Right. And just, yeah, you know, in my coaching career too, I teach our guys, my players all the time that it's a hundred meter dash. Right. And every time you take a, a shot at it, you might fail. And if you do fail, at least, you know, what, maybe 10 meters of that hundred looks like. So next yeah. time, you know, you know, in your case, you know, you just kept going, you found your passion and you just kept going at it. And we're a little bit alike in that, in that sense. I'm a very uh, big fan of golf. Like I, yeah. I took to golf the same way you did is that, that independence that really humble myself and really say, it's not, I can't put this on anybody else. Right. This is solely on me. And if I want to work it out, there's only one person that's going to work it out. Right. Yeah. That's kind of how I took from it. <clears throat> um, you know, decline that fast, you know, I know it seems like obviously not that fast, but it took you <laughs> 10 years to get to the professional side. And then from there, you know, you, you climbed up those ranks and you are right. Once, once you find your groove against competition, that is really good. Uh, it just excels you that much more. Yeah. What, what would be, you know, your best moment from uh racquetball in your professional career? Um, We'll get to this part soon, I'm, I'm assuming, but most of my best memories come from my coaching days more so than my own personal career. Right. Um, but I had uh, what I refer to as two signature losses um, that I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. um, one of the first pro events where I really, like it was my third year, I was I had made it into the top 32 in the world. So I no longer had to play the qualifying event to get into the main draw of the tournament. Um, I drew a guy that was an up and coming player. Uh, he was, I think at the time, if I remember correctly, he was number 11 and I, I was, uh, I, I had a two and a half hour battle with him in new Orleans, uh, the first tournament of that season. And I lost 11, nine in the tiebreaker. And a lot of the other pros were coming to watch to see if Adam was going to be able to you know, hold it, hold it together and win. Or if I was going to knock off, you know, a guy that was in the top, you know, top 12 in the world. 
And I, I did fall a little bit short, but given my very limited experience at that level, uh, I was really proud of how I held up under that pressure. And that kind of sort of put me on the map, not only with the other pros kind of, you know, acknowledging, yeah, hey, this this guy does kind of belong, but also just in my own head that I do belong here. I was two points away from from knocking off the number 11 player in the world. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. You you know, you walk a little bit taller, right? You, you bet. That confidence a little bit. And uh, I know you were leading towards your second one. I'll let you, I'll let you explain that. But I also wanted just to kind of add in there, uh, maybe you can give us a little bit of perspective from your coaching standpoint, because, you know, I'm a coach. I think that's really, yeah. really interesting. But go ahead. So my, my second um, signature loss, I do have a signature win that I lean on as well, but um, it was somewhat similar. I played the number one guy in the world in Stockton, California at an event. Um, I lost the first game very closely. I won the second game. I lost to him in, in four, the best, best three out of five format. I lost to him in four games. Um, this is not a man who, who ever compliments hardly anybody from what I can, <laughs> what I've seen. And afterwards, uh, all he said to me was you played tough today because I was, I was working hard and you still, still beat me a game. And to me that spoke volumes because he's not somebody that's known to really ever take the time to say something like that. So again, I felt like, you know what, I kind of did sort of prove that, yeah, I, you know, for a brief moment, at least I can hang with the absolute best on the planet in this particular sport. Yeah, of course you can, man. 18th ranked in the world. You can well, definitely there was, hang on. Yeah, there was a gap. I mean, there's no question that I never beat anybody in the top inside the top 16. There was a definite talent gap there. And oh, okay. the, the guys in the top 16 probably rarely have ever beat somebody in the top eight. There was definite levels to each, uh, each segment of the tournament that you knew who was going to get to the quarters and semis and finals in almost every case. Um, and so... But again, you know, once in a while I leaned out over my skis and, and hung with somebody that was notably better by controlling the pace, doing the things that I could do and forcing my game style on them instead of the other way around. And, you know, I'm again, I, I came up short in those two examples, but I, I, you know, looking back on it, I'm very proud of both of those moments. And then I did finally have a signature win over my nemesis, uh, a guy that oddly enough in that first tournament that I went to, that I mentioned where I lost as an amateur, I had taken one racquetball lesson from a guy and he was at that event. And I asked him, who am I going to be when I grow up? Which one of these pros am I most likely to mirror? And he said, Oh, Steve Lerner, no question. <laughs> that's, that's your guy, right? He's about your size, which I'm not a real big guy. Um, he's got a better backhand than forehand, which I think you will develop. Um, he's got this kind of game style. You know, he's more of a counter puncher. He's not going to blow you off the court with big serves and huge shots and anything like that. That's the guy you should watch. So I watched him play several matches that weekend. He made the quarterfinals and I kind of followed his career from that point forward. And then when I got to his level, he would kick my butt every tournament that we played against each other. But finally, one time in Las Vegas, we got paired up and I, I beat him in what was for him probably the worst case scenario because he had just switched sponsors over to Wilson. So a lot of people from Wilson were watching the match. He's from California at the short drive to Vegas. So a lot of California players were there. I lost a very close first game. 
Uh, this was two out of three format. Um, I, I won pretty easily in the second game, and then I won 11-10 in the tiebreaker. And that was my signature win. It was amazing for me to finally beat the guy that had beaten me so many times and that I had considered, you know, one of my idols in the sport. And, uh, you know, I, I, I the, as the moment goes, you'll, you'll appreciate this. I hit the winning shot and I turn around and I, you know, I scream in victory and throw my hands up and I look up at the crowd and everybody just sort of walked away and went, ah, Steve lost. Oh, no, man. <laughs> and, I- but, but as you know, and as I'm sure you've conveyed as a coach, this was my moment. It doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. To me, that, you know, took that weight and took that chip off my shoulder or, you know, it was that signature victory that I still look back upon and, and get chills telling that story. It would have been great if, you know, people stormed the court and carried me off on their shoulders. <laughs> that would have been really cool, right? But you know, that's, that wasn't the scenario, but again, for me, this was a massive accomplishment. And so I don't let the crowd's um, lack of acknowledgement diminish that. No, don't, <laughs> not at all, man. I, you know, I coach basketball and we, my team last year had the exact same uh, moment over the course of the season, <laughs> something you work so hard for. Right. And our guys, you know, our first game, we played this team, they beat us by like 30 points. And the guys, the guys were discouraged. You know, we were a really good team in our division at the time, ranked pretty high, and they just didn't see it coming. And then next time we saw them, we were ready for them. We prepared for them. It was probably a couple months later, and uh, we had a fluke uh, situation where one of our better players got kicked out of the game quite early for <laughs> he ripped his jersey by accident. And we ended up losing to that team by one point. And so we know, okay, we bridged that gap from 30 to that one point, and then the first round of our of our championships, uh, we met them in the first round in our home building, packed with all mm. our friends and family, <laughs> and we ended up beating them. Got a great win and a great moment for the boys to understand just how important it is to see something through, to yep. really just continue at it. You got your own set of goals, right? Your own set of something that you're working towards and whatever it is, you got to have pride in yourself. And it doesn't matter who in the building wants you to win. You're doing it for yourself in the end, right? Yep, exactly. Exactly. So well, that an easy segue over to the coaching stuff, right? I yeah. mean, it sounds like you had very much the same approach I did, which was that I was teaching life lessons disguised as racquetball. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing as coaches, right? We're, yep. you know, we're influencing an individual in a time of potential weakness where we think that they could, you know, could really change the course of a pattern that's happening or a way that they think. For me, I'm a very like a mindset coach. So I really like to make sure that we're in a positive set every single time. The boys understand that this is just basketball in the end, right? We can get better at it. And as soon as your confidence builds, you feel more comfortable. You don't have to worry about your coach yelling at you. You don't have to worry about so on and so forth. And it's very clear what you need to do. That's when you can execute and be successful, right? So I'm interested to hear because, you know, at the collegiate level, at a a big school like that, at Arizona State, right? Like that's pretty Mm -hmm. huge to be at. Tell me how that works out. So what started out, uh, there was a guy who was attending ASU that was on the racquetball team, and he was a very high-level player within the state of Arizona. And he and I would compete in local tournaments and got to be good friends. And he said, hey, I'm I'm not really the coach type. Would, would you come down and do a one-hour clinic for the team members? Because we have a guy that's like the club president, but he really isn't a coach. Uh, he's not He's not a great player. 
Um, and, and we've got some good, you know, some good players on the team, but they really don't know how to practice, how to, you know, develop skills. So would you come down sometime and do a one hour clinic? And I said, one hour. Yeah, sure. No problem. I can, you know, I can do that. Well, <laughs> that's that, that quickly segued into three hours, two nights a week and some Saturdays for 15 years. <laughs> yeah. You were interviewing for the job, eh? Pretty much. And I'm, I'm, you know, also one of the few people crazy enough to allocate that much time for free to something like that. Right. Um, cause I was a volunteer coach the whole time I did it. Right. Um, but it was the most personally rewarding thing I've ever done. Um, again, some of my best memories come from that phase of my racquetball career more so than my own. Um, you know, I have, just a huge volume of stories of, you know, helping kids have breakthrough wins or accomplish more than they ever thought they could. Um, racquetball has the unique distinction that it is recognized as a collegiate All-American eligible sport. So during my time, I had uh, over three dozen kids that ended up as collegiate All-Americans, wow. which is an amazing thing to add to your life resume. Um, and some of those kids got calls from recruiters that said, Hey, in, in our particular line of work, we only reach out to military and collegiate all-American athletes. We'd like to interview you. Um, so even if that person was a complete beginner in racquetball in August, when school started, but they made the team by no, by uh, March of, of the following semester and made it to the semifinals of their division, even if it was number six on the team they qualified as collegiate All-American. So that was a really cool thing to be a part of and, and have the kids be able to accomplish. Um, but, you know, just some of the, you know, the crazy stories and unbelievable comebacks and all of that stuff, you know, it, it, it was just an amazing experience. And, uh, you know, in some ways I wish I could have done it forever, but um, it was also time to kind of reinvent myself and go a different direction, which, you know, the, the car crash kind of was was one of the impetuses for that. So we'll, we'll touch on that here in just a second as well. Yeah. You know what? I resonate with a lot of those things that you say uh, I coach and I do it for free. I volunteer my time because, you know, my program that we build with self-care you and level up leadership allows me to impact youth and mentor youth uh, from all different directions and, you know, coaching and being there, you know, teaching a lot of different types of lessons, things of that nature. And that is, um, how I monetize my time. That's how I think that, you know, I'm, I'm impacting that way. So it's good to hear that someone else is on the same page as me. Cause there's many days when I drive <laughs> home, like, Oh man, it's 11 o'clock at night. I am not getting paid enough to be doing this, but you know, I right. understand it. And you know, some others don't, you, you know, you're totally right there. And we're, we're going to have this conversation about the car crash, which, which brings us to really, you know, how we connected. Um, when I read your story, I thought to myself, like, this is an individual that I have to have on our show to have this conversation. I'm interested, maybe just give you the floor and let you take over with the situation. You know, obviously you have a, I've heard a lot of your, your speakings and listened to a lot of uh, your depiction of the story and, and it is uh, very visual. So I want to make sure that we just open up the floor and allow you to, to share where you feel that you would like to. Yeah. Thank you. So this happened on March 8th, 2015. So um, this was obviously a few years ago. I was still heavily involved with the racquetball team. Um, but this was kind of, like I said, the impetus for me heading in a different direction. So 
uh, I was luckily my dad was already in the small town in Northern Arizona where I was going to meet him to go fishing for the day. He was not in the car with me when this crash occurred. Uh, I got up in the morning and I had, you know, gotten my stuff together the night before, set my alarm. I'm not much of a morning person, but I set my alarm for five o'clock, got up and hit the road so that he and I could meet at a McDonald's in this little town called Payson, Arizona. And <clears throat> that's about 90 minutes northeast of Phoenix. As I'm walking through the kitchen, I noticed that on the kitchen stove, it says that it's 4, 4 a.m., not 5 a.m. I'm like, what? Well, that's weird, but you know, I'm, it's morning. I'm kind of groggy. I'm like, you know, whatever. So I get in the car, I start driving and I, I get to, I'm about to leave the general Metro Phoenix area. And I see on a marquee sign at a bank that it says it's 4:37 AM. And I'm like, uh, what is going, how is that possible? How am I an hour early? Well, I found out later that March 8th, 2015 was the spring forward day where the time changed. Right. Now, Arizona does not change for daylight savings time, but my phone did. For some reason, my cell phone reset itself for an hour earlier. So I was on the road an hour ahead of time. But, you know, we we're going to meet at McDonald's. I figured, well, I'll just eat breakfast there and wait for my dad to show up in his truck and then I can hop in and we can take off. So I'm driving on the highway up to Payson. The largest mountain between Phoenix and Payson is called Mount Ord. And I've done this trip hundreds of times since I was 12 years old when I moved to Phoenix. We've we've driven to Payson and then gone fishing in the mountain streams that are nearby. So I used to joke that I could do this trip blindfolded. Well, as I got to the top of Mount Ord and headed down the other side, I could see in the dark that there was uh, yellow construction um, barriers uh, flashing in the dark. So as I'm working my way down, there's concrete barriers that are pinching the highway from two lanes down into one. And as I get on the last curve, uh, as I'm about to leave the construction zone, I'm probably doing about 65 miles an hour. And all of a sudden there's headlights in front of me. And I screamed and hit the brakes and came to an absolute instant stop. And I could hear somebody screaming, oh my God, oh my God, over and over and over. And it sounded like it was coming from my back seat. And then I had a moment where I kind of melded back in from two pieces into one again. And I realized that it was me that was screaming like that. And the, the best analogy that I can give was that the impact of that crash knocked my soul into the back seat for a second. That's, that's how it felt. Mm. So um, I, I, the, everything in the car was scattered all over the place. It's, it's completely silent. It's still dark. Uh, and I'm, I, I, re, I don't know how, if I'm hurt or if the other guy's hurt. So I'm feeling around on the floorboard for my cell phone so that I can try to call for help. And I, I find my phone, I turn it on and I have no cell signal where I'm at. So I, I climb out of the car and I had to climb out through the pass or the uh, driver's side window because it was, um, the quarter panels were pushed back the, um, and I could not open the door. And I was also wedged between the concrete barrier and the other car. So I climb up on the concrete barrier and I'm trying to wave down the cars that are going southbound back towards Phoenix to stop and help. But of course, they're not expecting to see somebody standing there in the middle of nowhere trying to right. wave for help. So um, so they keep going. Um, so I decided oh, I better check on the other guy. 
So I hop down and I start walking towards his car and I got within 15 feet of his car and I could smell the alcohol. I found out later that he, this was his third DUI and he was three times the legal limit over in terms of blood alcohol level. So he, as I was walking towards his car, he opened the door and he just kind of poured out onto the highway and sat there. And I just kind of stopped and was looking at him and I looked back up the hill and I could see headlights coming towards us. And I realized, oh crap, the, the next car is not going to be able to see us in time to stop. So I turned my flashlight app on on my phone and I start running up the hill trying to get the next car in line to stop. And luckily he stopped and then the next one and the next one. And as the traffic backed up out of that curve where you could see from a t- on top of the hill that the cars were stopping, I figured we were probably safe at that point. So somebody that was going southbound did end up calling for help, um, but it took 45 minutes for the paramedics to arrive. We were right in the middle between Scottsdale, Arizona and, and the town of Payson. And so it took that long for help to get there. Luckily, I was not you know, trapped in my car needing the jaws of life or anything like that. Uh, I literally climbed out of the car I had an abrasion on my forehead from the airbag and I had a small cut on the back of my left hand and that was it. No, no sprained ankle, no broken leg, nothing. I have no idea whether you consider it the hand of God or the universe protecting me or whatever. I have no idea how I was so fortunate to have walked away from such a high speed head on collision with literally just a scratch. Yeah. Like as you were talking, like halfway through that, I was like, You've made no like resemblance to the fact that you are not injured at all. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you climbed yeah. out, which was miraculous, obviously, that you got out. And and one of the things that I happened when I was reading about you um, and listening to some of your your engagements, you talked about at at some point in time you realized that you are saving a guy's life who potentially almost took yours away. You yeah. Know? So the 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 first car that stopped that I got to stop. Um, it was kind of a weird thing because if if the, the when the guy opened the door and kind of poured out onto the highway and sat there, he was sort of between our cars. So if another car would have come and crashed into us, it would have smushed him for sure, right? But the other thing is that that next car in line was like a Ford Fiesta or something really, really small like that. And it was a young couple with two young kids in the back seat. And you know, did, did I take the hit for them? Like, is one of those kids going to grow up and cure cancer or something like that? Right. Right. Was I just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Uh, Who knows? But, um, you know, I, I, I mean, part of me wanted to get out of the car and kick this guy's teeth in for what he just did. But I also, you know, had the other side of, I better check and make sure that, you know, if, if, if he's really hurt, maybe I need to do something. And then again, like I said, I, you know, I saw the cars coming down the hill and I knew I needed to get them to stop. Otherwise, that was really going to complicate the whole situation. So, um, you know, a, a lot happened in that two minute time frame there yeah. right after the crash. And the crazy part is that that construction zone was 100 yards long. If I would have been five minutes earlier or th- two minutes later, I never would have crashed into the guy, right? Or he wouldn't have crashed into me. Um, but as fate or whatever would have it, we met. And at, we met 50 yards in to a uh, a concrete barrier, one lane highway where I had no 
opportunity to evade him in any manner. I was trapped. And so took that, that hit head on my Toyota Camry saved my life. Um, and when the paramedics finally did arrive and they, um, took, took some vitals and stuff, the, the paramedics said, your heart rate's 85. How is that possible? Oh my. And, and I said, well, uh, it took you 45 minutes to get here. I've, I've had a little time to calm down. And he's like, well, I'm glad to see you haven't lost your sense of humor because of this. Yeah. And oddly enough, the tow truck driver said exactly the same thing. He was hooking up my, he had already had that guy's car on the flatbed and then was hooking mine up. And as he was pulling it up onto the ramp of the flatbed, the front spoiler, which was sitting down on the highway because the tires were blown out and stuff, uh, it, it caught and got ripped off. And he looked over at me and said, ah, dang it. So I'll, sorry about that. I'll, I'll pay for that. And I kind of chuckled a little bit and he said, yeah, I'm glad to see you haven't lost your sense of humor. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, amazing. sometimes you just have to kind of, you know, if nothing else, just laugh for your own sanity. Right. It's like, you know, it, and it, at that point I was, I, I still, the enormity of what happened hadn't hit me. Right. The tow truck driver says, well, look, man, I'm sure you've got some tough phone calls to make hop in and I'll give you a ride to the tow yard. So we drive a couple of miles and then my phone starts blowing up and it's my dad. And he's like, his, he only left one message. It was from the last call. And he said, Hey man, you're never late to go fishing. I'm starting to get worried. Call me back. So I, I call him and I'm like, Hey, you know, I, I did what I think most people would do in that situation. I minimized what had happened. I said, Hey, you know, changing plans. I, I got into a little bit of a car crash my car's in pretty bad shape. Here's where I'm at. I need you to come get me, but I don't think we're going to be going fishing today. Right. And he's like, okay, I know, I know exactly where you are. Hang tight. I'll be there in about 20 minutes. <clears throat> so <laughs> this is the part that always gets me. Um, he shows up and my dad's not someone that shows a, a lot of emotion. Like I do. I'm, I'm much more free with my emotions than he is. Okay. He, he jumps out of his truck and he takes one look at my car and he starts crying. Wow. And then I lost it. Then I realized what I had just been through and the fact that I easily could have died on the highway that day and that my father would be making my funeral arrangements. Darren, let me tell you something, man. I speak to a <laughs> lot of people, okay? And I have lots of conversations and you're just a great guy, man. And how I know this, how I know this is not only because I resonate with you from the coaching side of things and volunteering our time to better other people, but in that short moment that you had that opportunity to react, you reacted in a way of, of a person that does good. You know what I mean? Some people who, who don't necessarily operate the correct way like you do, you know, would struggle in that moment. You know, they might fall into shock or something. And you immediately slipped into trying to save someone's life. You're a resilient dude, my man. And uh, I'm sure your dad's super proud of you. And obviously <laughs> that moment is is obviously a moment where you wake up from, you know, what you think was this random dream that you were having and, you know, to find out that you were actually in a life-threatening car crash with someone who you know, took, it was so careless in the sense of having three DUIs and putting yeah. other people's life in risk. And I know, you know, I know you tried to like devalue yourself in the spot of where maybe you took that crash for them. Obviously your value is just as, as high as those, that short, you know, small family, right. With the little kids and, and but obviously the time, 
you know, the you being ahead in time in your schedule and, and traveling out there and all those things. It, it's just like it's one of those moments that you're going to have a course of change if you happen to go through it. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. I, I appreciate the kind words. And and uh, <clears throat> yeah, that's a, actually a good way to put it. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But when you said about, you know, all of a sudden I woke up from this seeming you know nightmare of a dream to realize that it was real. I'm I'm going to repurpose that for sure. I think that's a great analogy for what I experienced. Yeah. So on my on my way home, I, I was staring at the floorboards and I just kept asking the same question over and over. You know, the same questions. Why me? Not not why did this happen to me, but why was I so lucky to walk away from this? Uh, what now? Right. If if my if this was supposed to be my time and somehow that was altered, what am I going to do to honor the, the, the gift that I've been given, which hopefully is another 50% of my life, right? Yeah. It didn't end on the highway that day. I'm only halfway through. And <clears throat> the conclusion that I came to very quickly was I need to help as many people as possible with however much time I have left on earth, whether that's you know five years or 50 years. And and so that's where I started. It took a little while for me to really make the transition, but when I when I really started looking at, it, I I did what you know is might be kind of the typical guy thing, which is I buried this as soon as I got the check to replace my totaled car. I wanted this whole thing behind me. I didn't talk about it. I just want this to be. I want to close that chapter and move on. Right. Right. Well, that doesn't exactly work. <laughs> and so I had to dig it back up and start dealing with it. And one of my friends who I'm forever grateful for making this recommendation said, why don't you reach out to mothers against drunk driving and see if you can share this story. And so I've been involved with, with mothers against drunk driving for several years now. And I share this story in front of a, what is the definition of a captive audience, right? It is a court mandated class that somebody who gets a DUI has to attend. And so it may be anywhere from, you know, 25 to 150 people that are in a class. And at first I wasn't sure that my story really held up because most people in that, that are volunteers of Mothers Against Drunk Driving lost a family member in that same exact scenario. Me, on the other hand, I walked away from it, but they have been so supportive and so assuring that your story matters just as much as somebody else's does even if it didn't involve the unfortunate loss of a loved one. Yeah. So with their encouragement, I started telling this story. And the first time I told it, I was at a hotel that was hosting the, the, that class. And I, I got up in front of a classroom of maybe 40 or 50 people. And I pretty much just relived what happened. I had a few slides um, that showed, you know, a picture of the car and picture of my dad and stuff like that. And after I shared the story, I, I'm like, thanks everybody. And I literally ran outside and threw up. Like it was so emotional. The, mm -hmm. All the emotions that I had buried trying to put this behind me all kind of came out in that one purge. And then the next time I told the story, it wasn't as bad. And then the next time it was a little easier. And so each time I share it, not only is it cathartic for me, but I'm also hopefully having... I'm giving people, at least in that scenario, um, something to remember as a takeaway and go, gosh, I need to make better decisions. 
most people that get a DUI are not somebody that had the intent to go out and harm somebody, right? They went out, they had one more drink than they should have. They did not realize their level of impairment and they made a bad decision to get behind the wheel. The problem with that scenario is that in many cases, somebody dies or somebody is, their life is permanently changed. And so sharing that story, hopefully is a takeaway that people remember and they share it with others. And it's the ripple effect of trying to get people to understand, hey, my all of my actions have consequences, even something that's as simple as, yeah, you know, I, I should call an Uber, but I don't really want to leave my car here at the bar overnight. So I'm just going to wait a half an hour and then I'll drive home. Right. That right there puts you in a compromised scenario. Yeah. And, you, and you're in one of those spots where it's like, I could save money. You know what I mean? Like I could just, yeah, I could that just too. drive sure. all that kind of stuff. Right. And, you know, I grew up in a household where my mom was very much a supporter of MAD. Right. And we always had the ribbons up here in Canada it was always the red ribbons for mothers against drunk driving. And it's a, yep. and it's not acceptable at all. Um, it, there has to be, and there is multiple options for you to make a choice so that you're not driving under the influence and potentially, yeah. you know, uh, you know, make a wrong situation turn to, you know, someone losing a life, really affecting yes. a family. Uh, there has to be, you know, other options. You, can, you There's no exception to it. So, you know, it, I think you're the perfect person to have this conversation. Uh, I'm someone who grew up with that always kind of in our, in our, our minds. We always supported uh, Mad and as our family, my mom was always very clear with my brother and my sister and I jung- driving at a young age and, and that kind of stuff. And you, you hear about this story. Um, yours is very um, visual. Like you can, I can really picture myself out there and, and seeing it, which is horrifying uh, from what <laughs> yeah. I see. But like I said, you're a resilient guy, you're a public speaker, and I'm interested to kind of like see how your audience takes to the conversation when you're, when you're explaining this story. Yeah. So I I became a public speaker because of getting my feet wet in that mad scenario, right. That, that gave me the confidence to be on stage in front of a, an audience of of various sizes and and tell a a very, very personal story, obviously. Um, So when I was as the coach of the racquetball team, I had maybe 20 or 25 kids a year that I had uh, in the program and was, um, you know, helping to mentor and influence. And I wanted to expand my reach as much as I could. So public speaking seemed like the obvious way to do that, right? Obviously, it's very different. I'm not spending four years with somebody two nights a week. I'm having one one hour uh, interaction with them. uh, And then on a rare occasion, maybe some follow up, right? Right. Um, But it's, it's what got me started down that path. And so now I'm a recurring guest lecturer at Arizona State University in the business school and Northern Arizona University's business school as well. And uh, I'm doing some more corporate stuff these days. Uh, Through MAD, I was approached by Waymo about maybe doing something for them and uh, kind of promoting the autonomous driver technology as another weapon against drunk driving. And so I, 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 that's a very new thing. I don't have a ton of details, but I'm very excited at the idea that, um, you know, that, that my story may be associated with a technology that truly can be one more way to solve this problem. So, um, all of those things kind of tie together. And when I'm, even when I'm doing a talk, like on, on Wednesday, I'm headed to ASU to do another talk. 
and it's for a group of soft, uh, juniors and seniors. And it's about getting uh, resumes and uh, ready and real world interview prep for, you know, for their first opportunities out there after college. But one of the slide, the first slide is the picture of my car. And I, t I now tell people, this is why I'm here. This is what happened to me. And because of this, A, I chose not to be a victim and not have this change my life in a, in a negative way. But it also was the impetus for me to pursue something to help as many people as possible. And that's why I'm here today as your guest speaker. This is what I'm going to try to help educate you on. And here's where to find me uh, in the future if you have any follow-up questions or if I can be of service. So that's how all of those things kind of tie together. Yeah, that's great, man. Like I listened to you just chat and it's very much how where we built self-care you for that reason. You know, I, I'm also a speaker. I, I tell a different story, but I come from a spot of, you know, positivity and helping youth understand that uh, it doesn't matter where you are. Life is good right now where you are and you can definitely make it better with with any opportunity that you have you just have to make sure that you take it with non-judgment right and i think uh you're perfect i'm going to definitely recommend this to my players you're perfect for them to listen and understand that things are going to happen those highs highs and lows those peaks and valleys mm -hmm. are going to happen to you in your life and you just have to keep yeah. moving forward right you can't yeah. you can't just get stuck in them or else that will be it right um well if you if you look back over the the history of my life I became a pro racquetball player because of a wrestling injury. I became yeah. a coach because of a one hour clinic that I agreed to do. I became a professional speaker because of a horrific car crash that I happened to walk away from. So is a very bitter pill to swallow at the time, but sometimes the worst things that happen to you in life end up leading to the best things that happen in life. Yeah, that's exactly what we always say. And our listeners are definitely saying it right now, but I'm about to say it is that, um, you know, every setback sets you up for a comeback. I like that. Yeah. <clears throat> and you have that ability to move forward. Right. And we use yep. that analogy, you know, with the hundred meter dash, you just get further along to your goal. So, uh, you know, we appreciate your time for sure. Darren, I had a quick question for you sure. though. Uh, you know, if there's a person in front of you going through the same traumatic experience that you went through, what would be some of the advice that you'd give that person? Uh, if it was the exact scenario with the car crash, I was very surprised to learn how many resources Mothers Against Drunk Driving offers in those situations for anybody that was affected by that in any fashion. Um, there's there's typically way more resources for anything that than, than all of us realize. So definitely do a little research. None of us are alone anymore. With the reach of social media and the internet, and things like that, there's there's always resources to be found for sure. If I can be of help, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, as I always tell people, look, I don't have all the answers, but you're welcome to the answers that I have. So I would encourage somebody to reach out to me if they think that I could be of, of benefit directly. Um, but again, you know, find help somewhere because no, none of us should be facing something that's that traumatic alone because none of us are really truly equipped for it. And even if something similar has happened in the past and you managed to find your way through it, every scenario is different. So don't face that stuff alone. That's some amazing advice. And Darren, you know, I was just about to ask you, maybe you could give our listeners uh, how they can get in touch with you if they really wanted to reach out. Yeah, thank you. So um, my website is Darren, it's D-A-R-R-I-N, chatter, C-H-A-T-T-E-R.com. Um, I've got a 
bunch of information about me. You can email me through the website. You can find me on LinkedIn. I have a, my speaker persona is also Darren Chatter on, on LinkedIn. Um, and if I can do a, a shameless plug here real quick, I'm releasing a phone app in the very near future that is going to be a complement to my public speaking stuff. And it's going to be called Chatterbox. And I will notify you once it's up in the um, app stores, the Android and iPhone app stores. Um, but it's meant to fill in the blanks of all the things that I don't get to touch on during an hour talk about writing resumes and getting ready for interviews or basic personal finance or mindset or things like that. I'm okay. very excited about that. It's I, I wanted to write a book, but I, this is such a wide variety of topics and they're ever changing. So I think the phone app is going to be a, deliver, a better delivery mechanism of that and to be able to constantly update information and, yeah. and keep fresh and relevant. Yeah, you're right on it. And listen, if there's anything that I know about my guy, Darren, within the last half an hour, 45 minutes <laughs> that we had this conversation is that don't worry, it's going to be good. Like I, he's definitely going to work it out. You know, he's a professional racquetball player. He's a survivor <laughs> of a car crash. He's a public speaker. Darren, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show today, man. Thank you very much. Scott, it was my pleasure. I would uh, love to do it again sometime if you're ever inclined. Yeah, for sure. Be well. All right, man. Thank you. A big thanks goes out to Darren for jumping on the podcast and sharing his experiences. And a big thank you goes out to the team at Sleeman Mortgage Solutions for all their support. Be sure to check them out. I had the opportunity to share with our community just what Self-Care U is all about. And thanks goes out to Dylan with the Optical View podcast and the team at Kel Samrit for having me and my wife. We appreciate that. The second edition Self-Care U Level Up Living shirts are here. And let me tell you something, they are fire. Make sure that you try and get these shirts. The demand is really high. So if you are trying to get one, shoot over to www.selfcareu.net or on Instagram at selfcareu underscore level up, or even just email us selfcareupodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for all the support. We really appreciate it. This is Self Care U, and we definitely leveled up with Darren Chatter. <laughs>